Welcome to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Coming up later in the show, we'll take a deep dive into the world of locally produced malt and locally milled flour as we take a tour of the Valley Malt and Ground Up factory along the canal in Holyoke and all of their shiny new machines. But first... We are at the conference table at Merriam-Webster Dictionary in Springfield. What is this room, Emily Brewster? This is the front conference room. So when you have front conferences, they happen here. <laughs> yes. It's got lovely paneling, and it's got the best lighting of any, any room in, all, the, in the office. It's also got Merriam-Webster placemats in case you want to have a very Merriam-Webster Thanksgiving. <laughs> well, they, I mean, this could be a dining table, but this well, is not, not eating pens for Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. These are not placemats, Monty. They're writing boards, I think, is oh, maybe yeah. what they're called. Yeah. They're not unlike ravens. Like what? Why is a raven like a writing desk? Oh, what? I thought you said is raisins. <laughs> no, you had no, your back no. to me. No, they're not unlike ravens. It's a dumb joke from Alice in Wonderland, if I'm not mistaken. How is a raven like a writing desk? It's one of the things that they get asked at the tea party. Why is a raven like a writing desk? I beg your pardon. And the punchline? There is none because he's mad. Ah. <laughs> We're here to talk about opposites. Paula Abdul and... MC Scat Cat. That's not. We come together That's not really how opposites work. Is that I what we're talking about? I, no, I, no. I. What are we I, talking about? We're talking about words. No, but words. <laughs> are we talking about words that are opposites? Yes, oh, and okay. words that have uncommon opposites. So especially words that have what seems like a negating prefix in front of them, but when you take away that prefix, what you have is a word that nobody really uses. Uh-huh. And you like have- gruntled. Like gruntled. Yes, gruntled <laughs> is an excellent example. I was going to start by reading this fantastic little thing written by Jack Winter, published in The New Yorker in 1994, uh, the July 25 issue. Shall I go ahead? Please. Okay. It had been a rough day, so when I walked into the party, I was very chalant, despite my efforts to appear gruntled and consulate. <laughs> I was furling my wieldy umbrella for the coat check when I saw her standing alone in a corner. She was a descript person, a woman in a state of total array. Her hair was kempt, her clothing shoveled, and she moved in a gainly way. I wanted desperately to meet her, but I knew I'd have to make bones about it, since I was traveling cognito. But notes to me, the hostess, whom I could see both hide and hair of, was very proper, so it would be skin off my nose if anything bad happened. And even though I had only swerving loyalty to her, my manners couldn't be peccable. Only toward and heard of behavior would do. Fortunately, the embarrassment that my maculate appearance might cause was evitable. There were two ways about it. But the chances that someone as flappable as I would be apt enough to become persona grata or a sung hero were slim. I was, after all, something to sneeze at. Someone you could easily hold a candle to. Someone who usually aroused bridled passion. So I decided not to risk it. But then, all at once, for some apparent reason, she looked in my direction and smiled in a way that I could make heads or tails of. I was plussed. It was concerning to see that she was communicado, and it nerved me that she was interested in a Perel like me, sightseeing. <laughs> Normally, I had a domitable spirit, but being corrigible, I felt capacitated, as if there were something I was great shakes at, 
and forgot that I had succeeded in situations like this only a told number of times. So after a terminable delay, I acted with mitigated gall and made my way through the ruley crowd with strong givings. Nevertheless, <laughs> since this was all new hat to me, and I had no time to prepare a promptu speech, I was petuous. Wanting to make only called-for remarks, I started talking about the hors d'oeuvres, trying to abuse her of the notion that I was sipid, and perhaps even bunk a few myths about myself. <laughs> <laughs> she responded well, and I was made that she considered me a savory character who was up to some good. She told me who she was. What a perfect gnomer, I said, advertently. <laughs> the conversation became more and more coet, and we spoke at length, too much avail, but I was defatigable. So I had to leave at a godly hour. I asked if she wanted to come with me. To my delight, she was committal. We left the party together and have been together ever since. I have given her my love, and she has requited it. <laughs> Who wrote that again for The New Yorker? Jack Winter. Counting the yeah. ones that in that that I've used or heard in that form and it was like five yeah. five words it's fun to play with opposites in that way but how many of those words that were comically used right there actually considered words in usage in, by Merriam-Webster's dictionary well a bunch of them um, I think it's more often the case that the phrases that were used like to be sneezed at yes. like nobody says nobody yeah. says that but um, it's certainly something like uh, gruntled is something that people do say gruntled is a really interesting word by the way because disgruntled dates I think to about the is sometime in the 1600s and then in the early 20th century people started to say gruntled like you know feeling kind of like pleased and happy and comfortable. Um, but there was an older word, gruntled, that existed hundreds of years before that that actually went even more well with disgruntled, except that the dis in disgruntled is not the negating prefix that we know, like in, um, you know, disabuse or... If you just diss somebody. Or dissing somebody, yes. Yeah. The dis in disgruntled is actually an intensifying prefix. And gruntled at that time was a verb that meant to grumble. It sounds like it. Gruntle sounds like, you know, yeah. somebody's angry about something. So disgruntled might sound like you're no longer angry about something, right. but it doesn't. And gruntled also doesn't mean that because gruntled really meant angry about something and dis was like very angry about something uh, right right grumble right gruntled meant grumbling yeah there are actually now two gruntled words one of them nobody uses and it means like you know grumbling or having grumbled and then there's the other one that means you know happy and and just kind of feeling okay <laughs> why did we take the opposite one gruntled at least it's kind of automatopoetic you're so weird I mean, these words are funny because they're, they're, the meaning is transparent enough because we know what the opposite word means, and uh, we're familiar with that. And then they're, you know, it's, it's, it's surprising to have that prefix pulled off, and you get this word that you, you can figure out what it means, but it's, it's unusual. You know, another one that's interesting, I think, is the word ruthless. Mm. Right? Like ruthless, cruel, unfeeling, barbaric, right? But um, Ruth is a name. We know mm. it as a name. But it also is a really old, obscure word that means mercy. Ah, so merciless is yeah. what ruthless means. Yeah. <laughs> Looks like Jesus isn't the only name we use in vain from the Bible. Oh, yeah. And you wouldn't say ruthful, but, but you, you could. could. You could. Yeah. You really could. But would people know what you were talking about? Well, maybe not. Maybe mm. ruthful. Look, I got a baby Ruth, right, right. sir. Ruth. 
That's after Halloween, that's or maybe some. You're full of sugar. Yeah, right. And yeah. or RBIs. That's true. <laughs> Babe Ruth. Yes, yes. Thank you for explaining the. the Took me a second too. To what about the word couth? Do you like couth? Oh yes, and uncouth. Yeah, yeah. couth sounds cute. Yeah. Gruntled does not, but no. uncouth versus couth. Couth sounds cute. Couth is an interesting one, I think. It's most often, like you do hear couth out and about, but usually people talk about someone who is not being couth. They don't say like, oh, you're so couth. <laughs> you know, like people don't, don't really say that. I hope that everyone who comes to this party is, behaves couthly today, right? We don't say that. I will because I brought my Merriam-Webster placemat, so I'm not gonna get anything <laughs> on the table. You're not, you, you don't have any food in here, do you? You're not allowed to have food in here. No. No, okay. I won't, you won't be allowed in the front conference room again if you, bring, <laughs> if you bring food in here. Oh, how about the word flappable? I was going to ask about that one, especially because, like, is, is it actually from flap? So something becomes, like, from flap, flappable, and then unflappable. We get it from both ends. Yeah, it's very strange. This is a late 20th century coinage, both unflappable and flappable. Current evidence has unflappable to like 1954 and flappable to 1968. They're both really recent. And what is going on there? Like who <laughs> thought that this was a really useful metaphor for something? Like, you know, you picture a bird flapping, right? The bird is the bird is upset and so it's flapping its wings, but why? Why why that metaphor? Why flappability? I don't know. I don't know either. I keep thinking of like flappers, the kind of fancy dancers. But then wouldn't the word have shown up earlier? Maybe in the 20s, unless it just took a while to take off. Yeah, I mean, it's it. According to our evidence, the the flap here is the um, the use of the word flap to mean a state of excitement or agitation, a tizzy. But I don't like know. the dancers. You like the yeah. I was just doing a little dance that you couldn't see on the radio, but... Yeah, I can't see that on the radio. Okay. I should have been filming. Before it referred to the dancer, it refer it was a word for a young woman, though. Hmm. A flap? A flapper. Oh, So yes. maybe they were, they called them flappers because they were predominantly young women, I'm assuming? Maybe. You know, who knows, really? I think we probably shouldn't use that word anymore. Can't even use lady anymore, according to the East Hampton superintendents and school committee, so we got to be careful. Lady is a complicated word. Yeah, as mm -hmm. we're finding out. There's so many words that the person who identifies as that can use freely and other people cannot. Right. Like, I can call my girlfriends ladies and it feels really differently than... Mm -hmm. Although, Monty, I feel like you've you've walked up to a table where some women are sitting and said ladies before. I feel like I, that's something you probably do habitually. No. I'm smart <laughs> enough not to do that. <laughs> Sorry, future superintendent of East Hampton Schools. I don't disagree that there's some problematic nature what went on, but I'm smart enough to know not to do that. Ladies and gentlemen's. Um, here's another one, corrigible. Usually people are incorrigible, especially the children in my house can be incorrigible. Incorrigible, of course, means capable of being repaired or set right. Incorrigible <laughs> is um, you know, more than 600 years old, and corrigible is only about 500 years old. I sometimes think that a lot of these words that have the, the less common prefixless form, that it's, it's because we, there's often more occasion to use a negative word than a positive word. Psh, look at the internet. 
But often, like, it's, it's kind of unremarkable if somebody is corrigible. Okay, great. Everybody should be corrigible. Everybody should just be gruntled and couth. And so we don't really have to... make for good headlines. No. (laughs) Even 600 years ago. Right. The thing that is remarkable is when when we're experiencing or participating in negative behavior. And so that's what we all talk about. And then those are the words that become more common. And if everybody's positive, it's just markable. Right. Not remarkable. Just markable. Yeah. Bring back the positive roots. Take away the negative prefixes. (laughs) Let's live in positivity. Coming up, a factory tour of Valley Malden, Ground Up Flower, and Holyoke. Whenever we go to a factory, it feels particularly Mr. Rogers. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NBC. Once again, outstanding in our field, although we're in a building right now by the canal in Holyoke. It's another local hero spotlight with Phil Corman from CESA, the local hero folks. And what's your name? Andrea Stanley. Where are we, Andrea? We're in our malt house and flour mill. This is Valley Malt, right? Correct. Valley Malt and ground up flour. This looks like a giant warehouse. It is a giant warehouse, but there is all sorts of agribusiness going on in here. For those who aren't familiar with what malt and malting is, apart from milk balls, perhaps. Tell us what malting is and why you're the only house doing it east of the Mississippi. Well, malt is uh, something that goes into beer, and that's how I got into malting was Christian and I um, were home brewing when we first met and were dating, and we learned about the Hungry Ghost trying to get local wheat into bread. And we Hungry uh, Ghost, the bakery in Northampton. Yep, and we, um, we were like, oh, well, we're brewing this beer with malt. Why don't we use local grain just you know like the hungry ghost is trying to do and then we found out that the grain needs to be malted which is this process of sprouting it and drying it in order to be used for craft beer Mm -hmm. so instead of you know trying to start a brewery we decided maybe we should try malting and starting a malt house and connect local farms to craft beer and now there's an incredible craft beer movement in the 413 and beyond. What breweries are you working with that would have some of the Valley Malt malt? Yeah, so it's not just craft beer, too. It's craft distilling. So we work with distilleries. Mm -hmm. Um, One of our biggest customers in the area uh, was our first customer, Wormtown Brewery. Mm -hmm. Um, Out of Worcester? Out of Worcester. We work with Exhibit A in Framingham. Um, In the 413 here, we work with Abandoned Building Brewery. Yeah. <laughs> they're yeah. Real big about it. Um, their local Saison has got all of our malt. And um, we work with Treehouse Distilling. So they're another really supportive customer. Um, Treehouse Distilling? Is that different than Treehouse Brewery? Well, it's within the brewery. Yeah. I didn't even know they had that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They I have thought some they were really... just beer. No. Yeah. There's yeah. more to it than that. <laughs> What's yeah. your last name, Christian? Stanley. Uh huh. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Makes it easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they don't let us into. Like they put all the beer cans up as basically a wall, so you can't well, get to. Well, if the you look part. when you go into their South Deerfield facility, you walk in the door. You see, I think it's coffee on the right, 
and then right ahead there, there's a little distilling, and then you veer left, and then it's all beer from there. Uh, so you gotta like, you gotta be, keep your eyes open as you enter. It, you, you're very sight. focused on the beer when you go in there, but if you look, there is the distilling and coffee portion as well. So. Oh, the secret's out now. The treehouse, we're coming for yeah, you. Yeah. And then Holyoke's getting Holyoke craft beer is popping back up, so mm. um, they're right down the street here. Just and then there's a little bit with Amherst Brewing and White Lion uses a little bit of our stuff too. So. So tell me about what kind of grains you're malting and a little bit about the process. So malting mostly is barley. Barley is kind of the perfect cereal grain for you for the purpose of making beer and spirits. But we also today we're transferring almost 10 ton of wheat, um, which partially was grown in Cheshire, Massachusetts by the Balwenders. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we malt a lot of rye, we malt corn, we malt oats. So pretty much any cereal grain that you could think of, we can sprout it and malt it. What does that sprouting do? Like flavor-wise, why is it an important part of the process? And why does it seem specifically to have a lot to do with booze? Sugars. And- Sugars. Totally. <laughs> you got it. That's it. Because the plant. I don't always ask questions that I don't know the answer to, Khalees. Yeah. I'm asking them so that the listener can have a little glimpse no, into the world. Not to show off. Paying attention in biology yeah. and chemistry. Wait, let me guess. Do those sugars get eaten by the yeast and then poop out alcohol and then carbon dioxide? Yes, I'm aware of the process, but I'm asking Andrea. Let me be Greek chorus for a while. <laughs> yeah, so the seed that we're sprouting actually is an entire food system for a plant. So there's proteins in there and sugars in there that the plant would use to grow. But instead, we're capturing that, those sugars and those proteins. We're altering them slightly in the germination process where proteins are made soluble and get broken down and then um, in some of that process we set up amino acids to create the Maillard products or Maillard reaction which then help to give the malt this like lovely sometimes bread crust like sometimes toffee like sometimes uh, even more like toward the chocolate spectrum. And yeah. Khalees is nodding her head like, I love it all. Love yeah. it. Yeah. And, and the important thing about beer is people are always asking us, oh, how is the hops business going? That kind of thing. People always associate beer with hops. Yeah, I almost went to Four Star in Northfield today <laughs> yeah, instead yeah. of Valley Malt. And like, that's, that's, not, but, that's the wrong part of the yeah, process. Yeah, yeah. But we're malt people. So when you think of the difference between a Pilsner and a Stout, I mean, that's what we bring to the table is we're really that foundational ingredient in beer that creates all that color, a lot of flavor, all those things and we can really play here in the malt house the grain that we use for the pilsner is the same grain we use to make a stout with here at the malt house we're just doing different things to it to get that color to get that flavor out of the grain why are you the only game east of the mississippi river and why are you uh here in holyoke right well we're not anymore so we started in 2009 Mm -hmm. our first crop was grown in hadley in 2010 and then a few years later other like people would come to visit us and say I own a farm up in Maine or I own you know I'm a dude that is used to be in the music industry and I'm in Vermont (laughs) Um, whatever and uh, and then they came to visit us they saw what we were doing and then um, we you know assisted a lot of them in getting started so now there's a cluster of other malt houses in the Northeast which is really great because that actually helps support a more robust market for farmers to feel like they can grow the crop invest in grain storage like silos, buy combines, do all that kind of stuff. So we're a very collaborative industry, even though you could kind of say we're competitors, we're really not. We're kind of like craft beer, where it's like 
if you've ever talked to craft brewers, they all know each other, they all help each other. It's very supportive community. We're all kind of competing against the greater global commodity system as opposed to each other. Speaking with Andrea and Christian Stanley at Valley Malt in Holyoke and Phil Corman from CISA, the local hero folks. What's behind that door? Tyler. <laughs> a lot of noise right now. <laughs> We're going to go check out the noise in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So um, obviously you've gone against the grain here. Haha. Uh, and um, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, a lot of the grain in the country was grown in the Northeast. And then as transportation improved and acreage was taken from others, we started planting grain as we moved west. So what is it like now? I know there's been a tremendous learning curve for farmers and for all of you in this grain food system to be able to recapture some acreage for grain, learn again what hybrids work here and what you can do with it in the malt and the ground up part. We have come a long way. It's almost 20 years from the very early days. So there are some adapted regional varieties that 10 out of 10 years or nine out of 10 years make a successful crop and bring that farm profitability. But we still have way more work to do. So we're just like kind of seeing success at a point where then other like maybe larger farms when corn prices are lower are thinking that year maybe I'll grow some barley or maybe I'll grow some wheat. That's a terrible farmer voice. <laughs> I like that farmer. <laughs> well let's see here. But yeah so anyway we're at that point where you know there has been some successes. Obviously uh, you know we had a farmer here yesterday from Hudson New York who we've worked with for three years. He's a regenerative or organic farmer you know they come out and they see our new facility here in Holyoke and they're like okay cool we're gonna grow some more acres for you you know you guys look like you're doing well and things are going good and you're gonna be able to write a check when we deliver <laughs> grain so you know it's it's happening and it feels really good to have it happen for us 13 years in and Cornell is developing varieties we're involved in that and I mean they're just releasing the first spring variety you can basically just barely get some to malt it. I think we might malt some in a few months. And, you know, it just takes a long time to develop grains. You can't just call up Amazon or go online, I guess, and uh, say, oh, I need a new barley variety that works well in the Northeast and get that next day. It takes years of development, years to schedule when planting is, what when the demand will hit. It takes a long time to build this grain industry and that is why it's really great to have other people involved in it now with us because we're not this lone voice it's like there's there's a, a critical mass of people that are demanding these now from farmers and so there is a market we've already seen a full cycle when we started in 2009 start a, a year before 2008 um, corn prices were really high so when we got in there was hard to get growers to grow grains because corn is an easier crop to grow you're going to be more profitable with it there's tons of markets for corn and so we've seen that swing happen where it was the, the commodity corn market was high partly tied to ethanol and gas then it dropped and then we had growers that wanted to grow for us and then now it's high again so anyway all to say that this swinging what we try to do is be stable we're like this is the market we're not going to grow too much we're going to grow steady with you and you know what we pay you is going to be pretty much you can always count on it no matter what the corn market's doing part of the business is not just the sprouting of the grains but it's the the local agriculture piece and how it all fits together the thing is grains are important because they do really help with soil health you know if a farmer can grow grains once every two or three years that I wouldn't call it a rest but that period where the grains are in the soil really does help 
for a healthier soil. You know, we have a very steady growth process. We're not a business that comes in and promises farmers, oh, grow 100 acres of this particular crop for us. I won't call any out in particular, but a big person comes in, says, grow all this for me, and then the farmers grow it. And then all of a sudden, when it comes time to harvest and comes time to write a check for that crop, it's like, what happened to that person that promised us all this money for this? And then a farmer is stuck sitting on thousands of dollars of a crop with no market to sell it. In, and we're really trying to avoid that and be here for the long haul. And we want to build relationships that people can rely on us with and we can rely on them in turn. Coming up more with Andrea and Christian Stanley from Valley Malt and Ground Up Flour and Phil Corman from CESA. How did these former home brewers turn malters start grinding up flour? And we'll hear from baker Deb Bernardini about why baking with local flour, spelled correctly, makes better <laughs> baked goods. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. I spelled flower, F-L-O-W-E-R, in the script. Yeah, and then it made me just giggle. Because, you know, homonyms. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. And back to our tour of the Valley Malt and Ground Up Flour Factory on the banks of the canal in Holyoke with Andrea and Christian Stanley, Phil Corman from CESA, and Baker Deb Bernardini. So you're not only doing malt, it's also ground up flour. Was oh, yeah. that a byproduct of like the malting process or did that come? Oh, totally. laughter. Yeah. Well, we talked about the Hungry Ghost earlier. Yeah, it's right. our favorite bakery. And Jonathan was at one of our field days in 2018 and asked if we would put in a mill. And we were like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, let us look into it. And we had this extra little bit of space in our building in Hadley. And uh, there was a new bakery in Vermont that actually started making mills with granite from Vermont. And they were really sexy looking. And we were like, <laughs> okay, okay, let's buy one of those. So that's what we did. And I mean, part of it is we already had the wheat. Yeah. You know, we already had the relationships with farmers. We already knew how to process grain on the malting side and quality control, process control, all those things. So we felt like we had enough knowledge to go into it with an idea that it could work out. And it was a real twist of fate with the flour mill. Because when we started it, we were like, oh, we're just going to do this little thing. We're going to just like kind of model Valley Malt and, you know, sell pallets, wholesale flour to just little bakeries and things in the the area. But this little thing, COVID-19 hit. And I don't know if you remember, (laughs) but there was like a big run on flour during that period. And we happen to have a flour mill in our building. <laughs> and so all of a sudden we were milling like 14 hours a day. We were getting weird plastic bags from the co-op and putting labels on them to be able to give them flour to sell in five pound increments. And then all of your local delivery services popped up. We started selling flour to them. So all of a sudden over a really condensed period, the flour mill really took off. And then we've kind of been able to maintain that momentum since then. Um, we just came out with new paper bags, so um, trying to make our flour more affordable. I was just looking, it's you know, on the shelf there for just about the same as King Arthur, so it's pretty great. And are you working with bakeries apart from Hungry Ghost? Sure. Uh, Is there a baker here even that we could talk to? Yes. Yeah. Let's go over here. What's your name? Deb Bernardini. Should we disclose why I know you from a long time ago? Sure, we should. Go ahead. You okay. go. No, you go. Well, we know each other from my former life as a music industry publicist and working with the band Wilco and Solid Sound Festival. Awesome. Do you want to name drop the other awesome people they used to be a publicist for or no? You can say no. 
I'll go with no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we have this uh, music-based relationship, and then times change, and then you decide to start a whole new career. What are you doing now? I do. I am a baker. I have a micro bakery, which is my home kitchen is licensed, and I make bagels, and I make breads. Most of it is sourdough, naturally uh, leavened. And I sell direct to customer, but I have a relationship. Uh, I started a relationship with Ground Up because I use their flour. So we met a couple of years ago during Bakers Against Racism. Andrea and Christian were donating flour to a lot of people that were participating in that, and we met then. Now I get to test all kinds of delicious flours <laughs> and... It's terrific. We're not bakers, and so, like, at least on the malting side, we came into it, we were homebrewers, we knew how to brew, but on the baking side, we're kind of like, we're milling flour and just relying on a lot of feedback from the professional bakers we work with, like Deb, but now we have this great relationship where Deb is kind of part of our ground-up team and helping to onboard Smith College, committed to using local flour now in their dining services, and so Deb helped them to work on the recipes that they had to switch over from commercial flour to ground up flour. She's like the flour whisperer, basically. <laughs> flour power. Can, can you share a little bit, like, what is that art form of switching from generic, commercial, tasteless flour to local ground up flour? There's definitely a little bit of a learning curve in that, um, and that's part of what I love. Like, it's been really fun to uh, start to take some, a lot of recipes, most recipes that people are using now are written for that generic, tasteless, mass-produced flour. It performs well, it's predictable, but it doesn't have very much flavor, and so it is fun to turn people on to like, wow, this thing that you never even thought about the taste of flour. When you think about a baked good, you're generally thinking, is it sweet? Is it chewy? Is it, you know, but you don't think about the taste of flour because we are kind of conditioned, I think, culturally at this point in our food system for flour to not really taste like anything. Mm -hmm. And then when you start using these fresh flours, it's like, oh my gosh, like all of a sudden, something that just tasted sweet might taste earthy, nutty, have notes of savory, you know, similarly to beer and wine and things like that. It just kind of opens up a whole range of taste and it's really fun and exciting to do that. And it makes your baked goods a lot more delicious. It looks like there are baked goods. There are. There are. <laughs> There's so a these, whole box. Can we oh, talk they're about, tiny! Should we talk about um, square foot? Sure. These yeah. are like some samples that are going to be available at Square Foot Saturday that's yeah, coming Square up. Square Foot Saturday is April 22nd. It's our second annual here in Holyoke. And basically, because we have so many families in the area that use our flour or you know, like what we're doing. We have an open house once a year, and it's part of the Northeast Grain Shed Square Foot Awareness Campaign, which is for us to start thinking about the fact that this bread supports 18 square feet of local farmland. Wow, um, that one loaf of bread. That one loaf of bread, I yeah. Um, a craft beer, uh, an IPA that's, you know, 6.5% alcohol supports five square feet of local farmland. So I better keep drinking. Funny. I knew I was doing good for the world. Yes. So, so we're going to highlight, we're going to have beer, we're going to have baked goods, we're going to have pretzels, um, and we're going to be giving tours of the malt house and the mill and just kind of generally getting ready for spring. It's a ticketed event. The proceeds go to the Northeast Grain Shed Alliance. What is the Northeast Grain Shed Alliance? So it's the <laughs> supply chain of 
all the actors, so from the, the barley breeder at Cornell to the farmer in New York or Maine or New Hampshire to the millers, the maltsters, the brewers, the distillers, the bakers, all the way to like a craft beer bar like the Dirty Truth, they're a member because they, in their process of being a provider of libations, are trying to support the breweries that use local ingredients. Should we go see some of this stuff before we dig into this food? Or sure. should we? Okay. <laughs> However you want to <laughs> This is our little lab, um, mostly for the malt house. We do all kinds of tests in here each day. Moisture content, germination count, friability. Well, it's fun to hear the sounds of all this. This is when it gets all Mr. Rogersy whenever you go to a factory. So this is in this giant warehouse smells malty in here right now. There's a huge silo in the middle of it. Is that another silo over there? That's a silo bar. Ah, what does that mean? Um, we have a beer garden at the Big E. Oh, wait, so that's an actual bar? Like yeah, you that up, you yeah, yeah, we made, we cut a silo in half and we made <laughs> it into it a bar. turned it into a bar. Oh. <laughs> that yeah. is amazing. Yeah. What's in these giant bags? So, Grains that are getting ready oh, to Oh yeah, malt? so that's spelt that was grown. Uh, oh, is that spelt? It, it's gorgeous spelt. It was grown in the oh. Connecticut River Valley. Thank you for also um, looking at him the way that I was looking. Yeah. That's my spelling joke. Oh, shoot. I didn't even it's get fine. that. I'm sorry. This is my whole day. Yeah, so that's spelt. We're going to be malting that in a couple of months. Um, that was grown by Spencer Thrall down in Windsor, Connecticut. He also grows emmer, which is an ancient grain. So he, he's kind of a tobacco farmer turned um, grain grower. And he has his own malt house as well. This is our steep tank. So this is where the grain goes in to get hydrated uh, so that it can start sprouting. It's in the silos and stored at about 12% moisture. We're trying to bring it up to 45% moisture so that it has all the hydration it needs to sprout. And then this is our germination bin where, Margo, do you want to take them up there? Hi, Margo. Germinated grain to the kiln right now. So I'm walking up these oh, stairs. It feels like a very industrial-looking process here. Yeah. Or... So we used to do all this with shovels. We used to shovel an entire bin of grain onto an auger, and it went to the kiln. And now we have these fancy mixers that mix back through the grain and then push it forward onto a belt. So you have to stand up on a ladder to see, but. Um, up over this ladder over here. Margo wears headphones because that high-pitched noise would drive me insane in short order. So now you go up here, up this ladder, and you look in, and there. Oh, cool. this is all just sitting here beginning the yeah. process of sprouting? Yep, yeah, so that's hard red winter wheat. That's been germinating for like three days. How long will it germinate for until it's done? That It's done. So now, oh. right now it's going to the kiln, and we're going to dry it down for about 24 hours, and then it goes through a cleaner and a bagger and it gets bagged up and it looks just like grain, but it's not, it's malt. It's like this mixture of like ancient and high tech all at the same time, you got laptops and all these like iPads and things. Oh, yeah. There's also two scooters in here. Is that so that you can go back and forth across this giant space? Yeah, that's so everybody can go back and forth. That's like, hilarious. Yeah. There's two Razor scooters here that people can use to go across the floor. I love that. This is our kiln. So this is where that grain so that was where that grain you is going to end up. Margo's, this is a camera right here. She's looking at that camera and able to move that auger there across the kiln. So the grain comes over in a series of belts, loads into the kiln, and then is leveled across and slowly loads the kiln. So that it dries evenly? And then that's so it is a nice even level bed. 
and then we'll blow a, a lot of air through there, like a big hair dryer, I say, <laughs> to basically dry it all down. So it's at, let's say, 40% moisture right now, and we want to get it down to about 4% moisture. Wow. so that's a lot of hair drying. Yeah, so that's a lot of hair drying. <laughs> it yeah. smells awesome already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a natural smell of that grain kind of cleanly growing, basically. Mm. I mean, really, we're tricking the grain into thinking it's in the ground and then stopping it before it grows a plant. <laughs> so clever yeah how many people work here at either ground there's, up or valley there's Mall? eight of us total right now uh -huh. yeah that's yeah. great yeah yeah all right well it's basically a big loop so we yeah. can just keep walking <laughs> and if you want to ride the scooter you're welcome i kind of do <laughs> so we have like pizza dough flour right there and cookie flour that's what yep. those pictures labeled on there are for yep those are our bags all of our packaging for both valley mall and ground up is paper compostable we switched from plastic bags in the malt house in 2018 to paper and um, with ground up we from day one only wanted to do compostable um, or recyclable and so we started with cloth bags which everybody really loved but now we've swapped to paper bags which make our flour more affordable. Coming up, we'll learn about gantries and dressing millstones and middlings and finally get to taste some of Deb Bernardini's baked goods along with Andrea and Christian Stanley from Valley Malt and Ground Up Flour and Phil Corman from CESA. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. What does a million pounds of grain look like? And why are the tanks in this factory burping? <laughs> because science. Here's more of our tour of Valley Malt and Ground Up Flour with Andrea and Christian Stanley and Phil Corman from CESA and Deb Bernardini, who has brought us delicious things to put in our mouths. This is the mill. That, that's the sound of the mills. You said that the mill was sexy, and that's why you bought this it. This is Isis. Uh, Isis. Isis is moving around the gantry. What Isis. is a gantry? Oh, so this lifts the millstones off so we can um, redo them So once they wear down. Part of being a miller is you have to like dress your own stones. It feels really ancient. You've met Isis because Isis was a storyteller yeah. on Field Notes. That's right. Wow. Coming up at the end of this month. Yes. Nice to see you all again. Nice to see you. So this one's milling over here. And there's the stone, the granite, right underneath there. All right, now we'll back away where we can talk a little bit more quietly. Okay, Tyler Tedesco, are you the miller? Yes, I'm the mill manager here, uh -huh. Miller. And uh, what you saw over there was one of our two mills running. Two one-ton granite stones. One of them that you could see is a stationary base stone. And then on top is a second stone flipped over that is the runner stone that has one's actually spinning. The grain, we load up through the top into a hopper that drops down through the center. And we adjust the, the pressure of the mill so we control how close or far apart the stones are from each other to determine how much to grind the grain. And we collect the flour, package it up, send it on its way. Is this something that you like went to school for? Is this a, like a, you learn in, on the job how to be a miller? I have a degree in milling flour. No, I don't. <laughs> uh, no, it was just sort of like a long journey for me to get here. I was prior to this uh, working at UMass and working in the dining services there, working in the local food system. 
through working in that is how I met Andrea and Christian and I knew about the flour mill. I'm um, actually trying to get flour into UMass. Pandemic happened, jobs change, and reach out to Andrea and Christian to see if I can help out. And then, you know, that was two years ago. Yeah, Bernardini. I, I want you to talk to Tyler a little bit about the process of that kernel of wheat and the separation and the difference in commercially milled flours and what happens here and why it's healthier and what's kind of sticking around. As Deb was saying, uh, we do have a much higher nutritional value to our flour, even our sifted flour. So when you think sifted flour, um, you think of a lot of the healthy parts of the wheat, so like the, the germ being sifted away. That's what you think of when you think of white flour. That's why it's very white, because it's just the inside of the, and then the outside, so the bran and the, the middlings, we call it, gets sifted away. In our flour, our sifted flour, we are still sifting some of that stuff away as waste, but we're making a high extraction flour. So some of the middling, some of the germ of the wheat, so some of the tasty parts, the healthy parts, actually are still in the flour. We load 100 pounds of raw grain into the mill and we're expecting to get 83 uh, pounds of flour, which is relatively high when it comes to flour. You're not sifting out like 50% of it as waste. And that adds to the whole like concept of whole grain, is that right? When people see that on labels that they think, this is better for me because it says whole grain, it has right. more so it of has, that. It has more of the whole grain, more of the health benefits, more of the why you're searching for whole grains. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Woo! Step down. Oh, this room smells awesome. Yeah, this is where it smells incredible in here, where everything's ready yeah. to go. Is this all ready to get shipped out? Uh, a lot of it is, yeah. And then over here is kind of our inventory, if anybody puts in like a an order. This is Sheila. She's packaging. Hey, Sheila. Hey. How are you doing? What are you Yay. loading here, Sheila? Got pale malt. Nice. From New York grown lightning barley. How heavy are these bags? 50, 50 pounds. pounds. Yeah, that's a lot of bags. You don't have to go to the gym. Not at all, no. This is what we call grain gains. <laughs> also, now you know how to properly open these, right? Because I always have problems opening yeah. these particular bags. I, it's, okay. Top pot rips off the paper bag. How many do you think you move a day, Sheila? 300 maybe? 350 pound bags? Yeah. That's a lot of lifting. What do you bench? <laughs> Meanwhile, like, Sheila, what are you, 5'1"? And I'm 5'2"? <laughs> Five, two, and three quarters. Real quick, let's just show you the silos. Oh yeah, cool. Really Lifting up the giant bay door. Oh yeah. So this is almost a million pounds of grain storage. Whoa. Yeah. And are they all filled at the moment or? Uh, pretty much, yeah. We basically, you can never have enough storage. Each one of these is um, 150 tons, so three of those big truckloads I was mentioning. We've got five of those and then two smaller ones over there where we get in grain in one truckload and then we're like cleaning it or putting it into our malt system or our grain system. So everything goes through here from the corn to the wheat to the rye to the barley. Is there a name for a million pounds? Like 2,000 pounds is a ton. There should be like a name for a million pounds of something. A mill? Mill. Yeah. <laughs> So you've done incredible expansion here in a pretty short time period. I'm wondering, were you able to access any of the food security infrastructure grant money that the state has put out there? Yeah, we did. Um, you know, a lot of the malting equipment and the 
flower equipment. That was all our own investment or whatever, loans. Whoop, sorry. Sorry, ISIS. Of course that happens right now. What, what just happened to this, like a boiler? Um, no, no, it's just there's air getting injected into the tank and sometimes, depending on the compaction of the grain, there's water in there. And instead of the air just coming out the top of the tank, it forces water out this one big pipe and out the top of the if tank. If we were on the other side of this overflows. tank, it would have come out right yeah, on top of yes, us. Yes, so. yes, we would have gotten a shower. Where was I? Yeah, oh, yeah. so anyway. <laughs> So a lot of the malting equipment and that kind of thing was um, our own investment, but then we did get some money from the state, the Food Security Infrastructure Grant for what we call the Grain Hub, which is that outdoor area. And that was really intended so that, and we, we have this vision is that we wanna be very flexible with that grain handling system. So we can take grain in from anywhere, pretty much any kind of truckload of grain, and then process that in any kind of fashion possible in this building. So we can malt it, we can mill it into flour, we can just take the grain and put it into 50 pound bags, we can put it into five pound bags, we can do whatever. So, you know, if there is another COVID, if there is another thing that happens, like this facility can be really flexible. All right, Deb, let's go eat your baked goods. Be careful, apparently the steam tank just burped. Yeah, it was awesome to watch that. I was glad to be on the other side. Did you get wet? Just a tiny bit. <laughs> <laughs> All good. Sorry, Isis. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> These are bags. Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah. And we just kind of found the company that prints bags for, like, you know, gold medal and King Arthur, and we Hired had to them. order, like, a ridiculous amount of them, but we were able to get flowers. They bags. look great. It's hard to find packaging that's, like, made in the USA and, like, right. kind of challenging but clearly the way you're making your flour you're using more of the entire germ and all that i'm curious what happens to the parts you don't use we have about four farms in the area that come and pick up those big super sacks that you saw we probably have about three or four of those a week that we just load up on the back of a pickup of a local farm and they feed uh, any anything from goats to cattle to dairy some chickens so yeah we have a rotation of farms that come to pick it all up and it makes animal feed i will also say i use some of those mids um a lot of times in particularly in bread baking there's an instruction usually to use rice flour because it prevents sticking and so when i line my baskets i use the mids now and i don't use rice flour i use those middlings and they kind of do the same thing. They, they're really helpful yeah. with preventing sticking. If we had a mo more robust like food system, we would be able to sell that to like a local like pet food manufacturer down the canal, mm -hmm. you know, but that doesn't exist yet. Um, yet. It is kind of incredible that you are milling grain along the river, along the canal here, because that so many like paper mills, but also I'm assuming grain mills as well oh, yeah. in the industrial history of this area. And it's like the renaissance of that the new old-fashioned way, I guess, you know. Deb, are you sharing your recipes of ground-up flour? Yes, as a matter of fact, I am now writing recipes or contributing us, to yeah. a recipe column that you can find on the ground-up website. You practice at home on your own, yeah. not just live vicariously through and, us and eating and on the radio. I, take, I, I kind of field questions, and as people kind of experiment with the grains and experience some of that learning curve, um, totally around for answering questions and helping people. 
All right, well, what should we eat first, Deb? So these are crumb cake muffins, and they're made with the base of the muffin is made with pastry flour, and then the crumbs are made with spelt flour. Um, and these are going to be, we're going to have lots of these for samples at Square Foot Saturday. And then this is a new 100% orga organic bread flour that we've been kind of working on and getting ready to go with. And uh, there's two different types of wheat in this and a little bit of rye. And it's been really fun testing these out. I, it was one of those like, what? I get to do this, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, it's been super fun testing these out, and we're oh, really excited God. about this. So we'll have these to sample also. Yum. Oh my God, it's still warm. Yeah, it's totally yeah. warm. To go. I know it is. Bread. The bread is so good, Deb. Thank you. Mm -hmm. It's muffin time. Is right. there any grain that's difficult to malt, but you can't quit? It? No, not really. Mm. I feel like you know. As they long all as just it, kind of do their thing like they're well, like they're actually rye. <laughs> no, because it's true. Yeah. At every at every step of the way, rye is a difficult grain to work with. So for us in the malting process, it causes like some. Uh, it's stickier. It has like it does. It has uh, these pentosands that are gummy, and on the like distiller side, a lot of distillers use rye. It foams for them during fermentation. On the brewing side, they also have issues with it. So it's like a very troublesome grain, but it's such a good grain because it's very winter hardy. It has really long roots. It's huge straw, like as tall as me. Um, so it adds a lot of organic matter to soil. So it's, it's a really great grain just for agriculture and flavor, but it is a, it is a challenge to work with. But we don't think about that. Like when you ask that question, I'm like, nothing. Everything's, you know, like. Oh, wait, I do have this one no, problem, this, child. Yeah. yeah, we do know that the rye can be troublesome. <laughs> rye people as well. <laughs> Thanks again to Andrea and Christian Stanley from Valley Malt, Ground Up Flour Baker Deb Bernardini, and Phil Corman from CISA for leading us around their facilities in Holyoke. It was really awesome. Tomorrow in the Fabulous 413, our regular Thursday segment, McGoverning with McGovern. Got a question for the congressman? Email us at thefab413 at nepm.org or send us a text 1-800-639-9120 and we'll ask him for you. We'll also talk with Amherst's Thundup Searing and author Tenzin Sundu about issues affecting the Tibetan community locally and globally. Our director is Tony setting up the field trips done. Our engineer is Betsy Easy One today, Cordis. Our technical team as Bart, thanks for the trackball mouse ranking. Kara, prepare ye the way, Foster, and punk rock Dubay. I'm Kelly Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. See you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.